It's Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Bax, and welcome back to Baxi's musical podcast. My guest today is drummer, songwriter, author, educator, and the curator of the Post-Punk and Industrial Music Museum in Chicago, Illinois, Martin Atkins. In 1991, I bought a copy of the album Extremities, Dirt, and Various Repressed Emotions by the band Killing Joke. Now, I happen to love Killing Joke, but this was the first Killing Joke album that I actually bought with my own money. And I had known that their original drummer had left the band and they had hired somebody new. And if you know anything about Killing Joke, you know this is an incredibly intense band in which the drumming requires somebody who is absolutely ferocious. And the new drummer did not disappoint in the least. In fact, whoever that guy was, was a freaking beast. Well, as it turned out, that drummer would be Martin Atkins. Martin had been the drummer with John Lydon and Public Image Limited. Martin Atkins would also play with such industrial heavyweights like Ministry, Skinny Puppy, and later Nine Inch Nails. Martin has been everywhere. But Martin wasn't just a skilled and powerful drummer. Martin has had a career that has literally brought him through every phase of the music industry, through band management, producing, to owning his own record company, to becoming a professor of music business at Millican University in Decatur, Illinois, and literally everything else in between. This is one of the most intelligent and respected people in rock music. His latest project, even more fascinating, because Martin Atkins has created a museum, specifically a museum to honor some of the music that he helped create and inspire during the post-punk period. He also appropriately combined that foundational history with the advent of industrial music, which he was also instrumental in creating. It's a legitimate museum that celebrates not only the stuff from Martin's own personal collection, but donated items featuring bands like The Cure and Joy Division and hundreds and hundreds more. As a fan of that stuff, I was not only thrilled to become a founding member of the Post-Punk and Industrial Music Museum, I was even more excited to speak to its founder, the amazing Martin Atkins on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right, thanks. Yeah. Like the T-shirt. I was going to say, I wore the special for you. <laughs> I, uh, I was online a while back, and a friend of mine had posted um, their founder's package. For the uh, the post punk and industrial museum, and as soon as I find out found out that it came with a T shirt, I thought, well, I got I got to get on this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm delighted to be founder number one thousand ninety eight. Oh, excellent! So tell me about this. I mean, not only do I get the the, the cool T shirt, but I'm I'm actually very excited about the idea of this of the the museum. Tell me what uh, what made you start it. Well, it's so it's a bunch of things. Um, it's partially my ridiculous collection which <laughs> goes back to uh, I think when I was 20 19 or 20 I couldn't believe that I was in this band with Johnny Rotten and we were doing the John Peel show or going to Paris you know so I kept a paper cup from the BBC uh, <laughs> you know I kept my my ticket from the Paris Metro the backstage pass the hand typed itinerary blah, 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 all, all of the stuff, you know, not knowing that all of that stuff from Paris would become Paris au printemps, you know, that was my first gig with Pill. So, so I had my collection, 
But then, you know, five years with pill, killing joke, ministry, nine inch nails, pig face. <laughs> then, then you throw in the fact that <clears throat> I started Invisible Records. We've put out 350 albums so far. So I would have materials from Genesis P. Orridge, Einstein's and Neubauten, Swans, you know, all of, all of these releases that we did. And then I took all of these bands and more on tour. So, so the, and then the pandemic hits. Right. So I will be doing Zooms. I'll go, well, why don't I do a Zoom about my time in Killing Joke? And I pull out a piece of scenery as a background. So I'm starting to pull things out of boxes. And then instead of just saying, instead of starting the Martin Atkins Museum of Martin Atkins, <laughs> I, I, you know, which I'm sure some people would do, would do something like that, I'm sure. But I'd say, well, how can I use this as a starting point that will be more interesting for me and for people who aren't totally into me, <laughs> you know? So, so then we, we announced the, the launch last April and two ways for people to become a founder. One was to, to buy the founders pack and thank you for doing that. Of course. And the other way was to, to suggest something that, that they would donate. And so the response has been, I mean, in every sense of the word, overwhelming. You know, there's, there's 10 packages over by my door right now. <laughs> um, some people... The, the donate option was intended for somebody who didn't have $125 to become a founder. But some people became founders and then sent a box of stuff and then sent another box of stuff. So some people became, well, one guy, Paulie, he stopped by with 30 T-shirts in two big bags after becoming a founder. And it's just like, well, hold on. There's something else going on here. This is more important to people than, than than just having a place to put this it, it it really struck struck a chord with people the more i was reading about it and and obviously i, I wanted to research a little bit more you know knowing i was going to talk to you and then you know just being a fan of the music and and of your work all i could think of is it's it sounds like your house might have been this close to being on an episode of hoarders because it just sounded like there had to be so much stuff over so many years and really fascinating stuff too. It's not just like you, you got a collection of, you know, uh, of yogurt cups in the house. It's like this is this is real stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, you go back to the Mickey Mouse watch I bought at Disneyland in 1980. Like, all right. But then, for the Flowers of Romance album with Public Image in in 82, I I heard all of these rhythms inside this watch. We put it on a floor tom-tom. Nick Launay, uh, who did Kate Bush, Idols, uh, and, the, and just did the music for Peaky Blinders mm -hmm. on, on Netflix. You know, he, he engineered this stuff. And so then I played drums to the, the sounds of this Mickey Mouse watch. And we've got that. We've got the signs from the dressing room door of, of, on American Bandstand. You know, but then people have started to send me stuff there's a there's almost a Marilyn Manson wing um, cancelled at the moment. I'm not sure if he will continue to be cancelled, but people are sending skinny puppy stuff. I had some skinny puppy stuff because I worked on the process album with them, 
But once people saw that there was an area that was puppy, people started sending more stuff. And, and it becomes, it just becomes something else. It's a nice place to sit. Um, I find it quite relaxing. We're doing a bunch of events this weekend. Um, we're doing a, we're trying to do non-traditional museum stuff. So instead of, oh, don't, don't touch. Those are the drums from the Head Like a Hall video and the ministry tour. You know, I, like, yeah, go, go ahead, go play my drums. I, I haven't broken them in 30 years. <laughs> I doubt that you can, you know. Um, uh, we're doing a whiskey pancake pop-up brunch. Um, we've done haircuts just because a bunch of people said to me, oh, be really careful. I'm like, yeah, we'll be really careful, but there's going to be hair all over the floor next week because we're doing haircuts. So I'm trying to, you know, stumble my way through a post-punk approach to a museum, you know. I love this idea because to me, post-punk and even industrial music to, to a greater extent too, I mean, it's, it's a, there are genres of music that have an enormous amount of fans, but it seems to be an underserved genre when it starts talking about, you know, the history of, of, these, of this music and, you know, where it fits and culture. And, you know, I'm of the age, I'll be, I mean, I'm 56. I'm of the age where this is like the sweet spot of music I listen to from college on. And so it's, you know, I'm, I'm so excited about the fact that this is, this is a place that exists in Chicago, which, you know, a city I've been through many, many times. I, I, I went to school up at Marquette in Milwaukee. I don't know the city reasonably well. And to me, the idea of, of, of coming out and looking at this stuff and, and being, you know, and being a founder with a t-shirt, this is music that does need to really get a second look because it is a powerful music for a whole generation of people. Well, and it isn't just the the music. A lot, I mean, of course, that's important. Um, there's there's all of these visual elements from the Ministry Cage tour. So I've got you know pieces of the cage. Then I have pieces of the cage that a band called Test Department borrowed, stole, whatever, and turned into instruments on stage for their tour. So we we've got those instruments that they made. Then all of this screen printed these backdrops that, that we would do for different tours uh homemade t-shirts hand screened album covers sandpaper album covers all of these different <laughs> things that you can look around and go okay it kind of gives you a handle on a a creative path uh, a, a process to make things happen in a very diy way without in a in a in a punk way, not asking for permission, you right? Know, just doing it, and and so what what I like about the museum is, I like a lot of things about it, but that we're we're doing it in a punk, post-punk, industrial way. It's not like we've received a grant from the city and here it is, <laughs> because that none none of us have ever received grants from anybody. So, um, which is not to say that we don't want to pursue that stuff in the future, but. This didn't start because somebody gave us permission. Right. It started because it, it was just an idea that resonated with people. I was hoping to get the uh, the the PPIM catalog in the mail. I ordered that too because I want to see the, some of the stuff that was in there. But of the things that you've received so far, what was the biggest surprise for you personally? Oh, 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 oh. I mean, there's there's been 
there's been quite a few. Um, there's some things that are surprising and jarring is not the right word, but, but um, so for instance, somebody brought uh, the skull from a ministry mic stand from 1993. And it's in, a, it's in a lot of photographs. And that was like, okay, that's interesting. But then somebody sent me, we have the two inch tape of Burning Inside, the multi-track tape from Burning Inside. And that's cool. I'm like, what on earth are we doing with this? But we also have from 89, a reel of two inch tape. And it just says, Martin and Bill, that's myself and Bill Reefland, the, the two of us who did the cage tour, unfinished drum track. Well, so Bill Reefland is no longer with us. So so now, now I have to, you can't just play these old tapes. You have to bake them in an oven uh, professionally. So we have to do that, then pull the audio off. And then I get to sit in a room and listen to me I don't know what the song is. Some things, if you say, oh, it's another version of this, it, I would know what it is. I have no recollection of this happening. Really? So I'm kind of, that's going to be strange and hopefully it will be awesome, you know. But but uh, so things like that. Um, somebody just sent me last week 16 copies of Alternative Press magazine that Jason Pettigrew, the senior editor of Alternative Press from back in the day, was like, well, I, I don't even have these. How are you? How are you getting this stuff? <laughs> you know, um, a burnt signed burnt Bible from a Manson show. Um, all all kinds of um, t-shirts. Uh, there's a there's a band called Hilt, H I L T, which is a predecessor to Skinny Puppy. I didn't mm -hmm. know this. I learned this stuff. Va Vancouver, and somebody sent me a t-shirt. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, great. And I look it up. There are only six of these known to exist. Uh, okay, you know. So, <laughs> so, um, but but you also got to feel for these different kind of currencies, the different ways that people remember. Some people it's buttons. Some people it's tour passes. Some people it's t-shirts. Some people it's posters. You know, and uh, or vinyl albums or, or whatever. And people just keep sending us this stuff. Remarkable. I, I've I've been listening to your music, to your work for a long, long time. And uh, in 1990 is when I started to get into to Killing Joke. And okay. and the first album I bought was Extremities Dirt and various repressed emotions. And I remember, and I you know I had, I've he I had heard you know Killing Joke songs before then, but that was the first album that I actually went out and and, and bought. And I remember listening to it and going, Jesus, who the hell is drumming on this record? <laughs> Thinking, oh my God, who's ever doing this? A freaking beast, you know. That is a band to me. That was a, a great comeback record for them, and it showed a band of, of such enormous power and urgency. That's like one of the things I've, I've always loved about Killing Joke. I know you only played on that one album, but you did manage them for for a while. Tell me a little bit about that. Was like to 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 work with Killing Joke. Well, uh, thank you for all of that. Um, it, it, okay, so I I had five years had five years in Public Image, and and worked, you know, the, one of the last things I did with Pill was This Is Not A Love Song, which is the biggest selling single they've ever had, you know. And so, and then I was so unhappy. Um, house in LA with a swimming pool. I'm like, if this is it, and for a kid from the north of England, 
if a house in LA and a hit single isn't it, then you need to be, you need to be a welder, you know? Right. Um, but so, and, and I just, I gave up for a while. And then um, Geordie from Killing Joe got my number and called me and said, come to England. We wanted to join Killing Joe. And so I'm like, all right, change. Love like, well, I saw Killing Joe, you know, in 1979. I love Killing Joe. And uh, 80s, you know, Kings and Queens, nighttime. Yeah. And then the two days before I got on the plane, <laughs> my first wife said to me, she used to be at WMSE radio in Milwaukee. Oh, actually. yeah. Yeah. And she, she worked at Atomic Records and uh, <laughs> she, she's a, a fixture there. And um, she said, uh, before you get on the plane, I'm like, change, da 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 da, ah, you know. <laughs> Uh, you should uh, listen to the last album. Like, oh, I, I haven't heard of this album. So I put on Outside the Gate, and uh, I nearly I nearly didn't get on the plane. Yeah. I'm like, what, what, is, what happened? And I just found out in, in doing my, my uh, uh, coronavirus Zooms, I, as I'm doing more and more research and adding a slide every time I do it, you know, I, I found out that that album was why Paul Raven quit paul ferguson quit asked to have his name taken off so 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 my time in killing joke was was almost like um uh, how do i describe it was almost like i i had to put on the force field and it became my job to to get them back to where i loved them yeah you know but uh, but then along the way they didn't they didn't do that much work, right? So, and I, I wanted to, let's go, let's go and do a hundred shows, you know? And, and there was these periods of downtime. I'm like, what? let's tour America, you know? And we did some American dates and then bumped into Al Jorgensen. And Al said to me, come, you should come and do this tour with us. I'm like, okay. So before, so I was in Killing Joke when I toured with Ministry and that Ministry album, that experience took my drumming to another level, you know. So, like somebody plays "Burning Inside," and you know the beat to "Burning Inside," just a constant drum roll. And I tune my drums very loosely, so it isn't like you hit the drum and the stick bounces back. It just goes do, do, you know. So, after playing all of those songs for six weeks, and and seeing ministry go up the charts, seeing the response from the crowd, I'm like, okay, it, it, I took on the job of guiding, insisting that, that um, the lyrics were up to par and addressed people that were coming to our shows instead of some global elite there's there's a song on there called age of greed yep and i mean this is at the studio this is at the museum so i knew that i had arguments with jazz about the lyrics and i'm like what what is this what is this song you're singing and and part of the song was about first class travel <laughs> it's not it's not really worth it you know and i'm like who is this song for jazz Killing Joke fans in England are hitchhiking to shows because they love the band and they have no money. I can't see, 
I can't imagine these people down the front agreeing with first no why first class travel, although Turkish Air is really good value in business class. So, what is this effing song about, man? And, and so there are these lyric sheets at the museum, and I can see my handwriting and Geordie's handwriting, you know. And then I remember being in the studio and calling up Chicago Track Studio, where Ministry recorded here, here in Chicago, and saying, I remember hearing this um, this advert for meat. Like, when was the last time you had a tender, juicy steak? Yeah. And I had uh, Jessica Philines, uh, who was an assistant at the studio, record the, the ad off the TV <laughs> and send it to me in England. So, so that Extremities album, I was the beneficiary of six weeks of insane drumming and, and six weeks of rehearsal before that. And I think Killing Joke was the beneficiary of, of, of somebody within the band who wasn't going to let, I, I don't know how this is going to sound, let them get away with just keyboard masturbation that was on outside the gate. Sometimes it got really, uh, it was almost a force of will, you know, um, and sometimes it got really difficult. Um, but honestly, after that album, um, we had some fantastic shows and some great tours, but um, I wanted to, I wanted to do 300 shows a year. I started pig face. So I was in killing joke when I toured with ministry <laughs> halfway through the ministry tour, I started pig face. And then I went and did the extremities album with killing joke. So there's this period of in, insane creativity. Um, but once, once we toured with pig face and there's ogre, there's Chris Connolly, Andrew Weiss from the Rollins band. There's all of these people. I saw a different way that things could be. And, and I didn't want to spend more time with Killing Joke arguing with everybody all the time. My, my sense of, uh, of being a fan of theirs, and I, you know, I watched the documentary the, uh, that came out a couple of years ago, and, and you, you were in it. it. It does sound like this is not really the easiest band to be in. <laughs> this, this has to be a lot of, not just a lot of work physically, but just a lot of work, maybe more so emotionally and intellectually than maybe anything else. Yeah, I mean, jazz is intense. And, and so, you know, I mean, I've, I, I've, been, I've been around John and Al Jorgensen and Trent and everybody else, you know, Genesis P. Orridge. Uh, and you want you want people in bands to be intense and difficult and, and not easy to deal with, you know, because that's what makes the thing interesting to watch. But yeah, I mean, Jordy is a phenomenon. I love Jordy's guitar playing. Lucky enough to be in a band with Keith Levine at mm -hmm. his height, you know. Uh, Jordy is one of my absolute stunning guitar players, favorite guitar players. Paul Raven, who who replaced youth and now youth of course because paul raven passed uh, now youth is back with them I, I get along great with youth um and we all get along okay now but it was very difficult for a while because i quit killing joke you know and um i i take pride in in what i did while i was with them things were very very difficult there was no money and i'll tell my students i'm like i had to start managing the band 
for the band to exist because I wanted to play drums in them, you know? And so, so, I mean, during recording of Extremities, we got a phone call from Poland. We want you to do this show for 15, it's 15,000 pounds to play a stadium in Warsaw. And they're like, well, we can't do it. We're making an album. I'm like, oh, we kind of need to do it, you know. <laughs> and then, and then um, Roger Taylor from Queen had some kind of benefit in Geneva, Switzerland. Ten thousand pounds, you know. And I'm like, we, we got guys, we got to do this, you know. So, so I got to work, and I'm like, we, we could send our equipment to Poland because. And I made sure, you know, Jazz had done all of his OBX overdubs. I did the drums for Extremities in 11 hours. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was, I, mean, I mean, we rehearsed for six weeks, but, you know, I mean, I, so, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's intense. We were really prepared. Um, so I didn't need the drums, you know, and, of course, if something came up like, oh, my God, we've got to overdub the cowbell, we would have rented one, you know. So I'm like, look, guys, we can mix, send the equipment to Poland, you know, we can fly to Poland, do that show, fly back, then the equipment truck and our crew can drive to Geneva, then we, you know, we're back in the studio for four days, we can fly to Geneva, and I think I had like a listening session at the hotel and whatever, and, and made it so that we could juggle these things and 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 there would be some money to uh, to keep things moving, you know. But Killing Joke is one of those bands that has a a tendency on a long history of self sabotage, which is unfortunate because I mean, like right now with all four original members, the band sounds fantastic. The last few, couple of albums they've made. Yeah, I mean, and my goodness, most of the bands I've all of the bands I've been in <laughs> are still are still playing. You know, PIL still exists in a kind of a different form um, than, than, than it used to um, in the 80s where, where anything could happen. Sometimes a song was five minutes long. Sometimes it was nine minutes long, you know, to allow for improvisation musically or visually. If John was dragged into the crowd or there were riot police on stage or whatever was going to go on, you know, everything was flexible. Now I think it's, the, you know, it's almost like a PIL cover band. Yeah. You know, um, but um, I love going to see Kill and Joke. And we, and as I said, we, we all get along okay now. There's a little bit of like, you know, uh, drummers don't leave singers' bands, you know. <laughs> um, but but I, I think that's, that, you know, didn't help my relationship with, with Leiden. But it's something that we've kind of gotten over with Kill and Joke. And yeah. So it's, it's great to go and see them, yeah. I want to ask you about uh, about Public Image, because a couple of weeks ago, I, I did an interview with uh, with Ja Wobble, and he was great. And we'd spent a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, those early records, uh, you know, especially Metal Box. Mm -hmm. He's done a, a dub version uh, of it, yeah. which sounds really yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, Pill to me is like one of those bands where, you know, in its entirety, you know, may have been as influential or maybe even more so influential than the Sex Pistols were, depending on, on you know, what direction you're following. I mean, I know you only played, like, the one song on, on, on Metal Box, but I was just listening to um, Flowers of Romance the other day, which I hadn't heard in a long, long time. I just listened to the drums on it. And, you know, I think for any drummer, 
which I am one, but not a very good one. I'm, I'm a long ways away from Martin Atkins. I can tell you that. But uh, you know, just from a, like a for any drummer, I think that's a, a an essential listen because it just shows you that it's not that there's a certain creativity that you can use to approach drums. And in that case, it was like you know very different from anything you've ever heard before. Much like the first two Pill albums. To me, that that fits, even though it is probably not the most popular of that catalog. To me, it's a really important one. I, I mean, I can just hear the creativity that's pouring out of you guys at that time. It's a really cool record. Thank you. So, I mean, so tell me about that experience because you know, obviously, this is this is a band that could have gone in any number of directions. You know, very strong personalities. You know, you know, Leiden is is as in very much the way that Jazz Coleman is a strong personality. Also came with pretty significant challenges too. Tell me about that experience of of officially joining that band. Well, so I wasn't actually in the band when I did Flowers. You know, I I joined after Metal Box. We did John Peel, Old Grey Whistle Test, Paris, the American tour, and then Keith fired me. Um, and then they asked me to come and do some work. They, they called me a session drummer at the time, which is <laughs> bullshit because you, you would pay a session drummer. In fact, some journalist, <laughs> some journalist called me up like a year ago and said, what? people said you were a session drummer, but you don't give session musicians writing credits. You know, they co-wrote a bunch of that stuff. So it was a crazy time. We were in Studio 2 at the Townhouse in London which is where Phil Collins recorded in the air tonight. So yep. you're in one of the best sounding drum rooms in the world. Um, Nick Launay was 10 weeks into his career, which is still going. He just did Idols, Peaky Blinders, Kate Bush, etc. Nick Cave. And, and it was me and him. So w- one of the things that used to really piss me off is, you know, somebody would ask Keith Levine, tell me about flowers and he would tell them about flowers he kind of wasn't there you know he was face down on the carpet uh involved in whatever drugs he was involved with at the time and it started with me and nick we crafted six or seven songs there's a couple that haven't been released which i have fully formed with vocals and keyboards and everything um and so we would just layer these songs with my Mickey Mouse watch and boom, 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 right? You know, and then, oh, I bought this trumpet in Paris that when you blow in the trumpet, it flips a diaphragm, which starts a mini record player, which plays these two-inch records of <laughs> someone playing trumpet. So we reverse that, you know, and then set off a fire extinguisher at the start of Under the House and used... Um, aerosol spray to replace a hi-hat just crazy experimentation and um and the miraculous thing about that album i think was that these were kind of audio experiments rhythm experiments soundscapes whatever you want to you know and john was always around like sometimes you'd be in a studio for eight hours and He'd be, there was a couch in front of the console, two steps down. And you're just like, you'd be there. And like, oh, he'd just appear because he'd been there the whole time, you know. Or he'd be outside the studio, but you could hear stuff. 
so we do these pieces and John would just come in and sing under the house, which in the same kind of way that I think Maynard might do with Tool. Whereas like, here's this thing, or, or, or but I, I heard that Bowie did this as well. They, they would make this music and they go, okay, hit verse, and then the, the middle eight, then the chorus and the boom, boom, boom. And Bowie come, would come in and sing a chorus across the middle eight and the instrumental, you know, like <laughs> just, and, and that's what John would do. He would sing a fully formed song over the top of what we were doing, sometimes in one take. And, and so when John pretends he has a strategy, like what was the plan? Like people might imagine, John's a, a, a strong individual. It's like, all right, Martin, I'm thinking like a diddly 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 diddly, like a chieftain's baran rhythm, but across the drums, Nick, do a harmonizer pattern with a Mickey Mouse watch. Who's got a backwards trumpet? You know, just, <laughs> that didn't happen. It was just creativity gone mad. And then we started, I'd go in and, and drink some Perrier and we record the glug, glugging sounds of me drinking Perrier. We record that at 15 inches a second, play it back at one and three quarters. And it sounded like dinosaurs coming out of a swamp. And then I'd play a beat to that, you know? And so I, I did my work on Flowers uh, was uncredited on the track, the title track, Flowers of Romance, which we just worked that out about five years ago. John's management sent me a letter saying, yeah, you know, that is you playing drums. And I'm like, well, hold on a minute. Then that's a co-write because I I played drums to blank tape. Right. So that's that's a co-write. And um, so we still need to sort more of that out. But but then, then I jumped on a plane and came to America to tour with my band, Brian Brain, um, which is this crazy, violent three-piece punk situation with my drums on tape. And then it was maybe six months after that, uh, John and Keith moved to New York City. And I just said, screw this, I'll, I'll move to New York as well, because people were. And then they asked, they came down to a show I had at the Mud Club and asked me to rejoin the band to, and we started working on this is what you want this is what you get yeah but um i have uh, massive respect for john we don't get along very well these days um and and i can understand how it's diff john has a bunch of employees that that work with him so i i have never been an employee of john's and i would tell him exactly you know <laughs> um and that I understand that that's not always easy or desirable to be around. I, I get it. I seek that out with pig face because I think it makes for a very interesting result. It would seem that, uh, you know, after working with John and uh, with, you know, Keith Levine and jazz Coleman, that uh, Al Jorgensen must've been a piece of cake to you. Well, it, it was, um, it felt like first day of school because I mean, I've known wobble for a long time. We, when I was working on Wobble's Betrayal album, we were early for a session. Killing Joke were late. I was dating Beth Ann Peters, who was in Delta 5. She knew youth. So all of these people I'd had some kind of connection with in one way or another. Ministry, as Olga from Skinny Puppy, I'm like, all right, you know, Chris Connolly from the Feeney tribe. I didn't know anybody. So, um, but certainly 
all of that prior experience made it like easier to deal with. But I just want to mention before we go on to ministry that I'd loved working with Wobble and we still get along pretty well. Um, you know, he decided to leave the band before we came to America, which is heartbreaking for even, I, I mean, he, he quit afterwards, but it was heartbreaking for me to find out that all of the, you know, New York City, Detroit, Chicago, we went to see the, the Crusaders in Detroit. And uh, that that experience, he knew the whole time he was leaving. And me, I'm just like this wide-eyed kid, like, America, here we are, you know. But I, I, I love Wobble, and we, we later did the damage manual together. But, um, but yeah, ministry, that time of ministry, um, industrial music was exploding. It was new, and I remember we were rehearsing in Evanston at this theater, and Patty Jorgensen, who was Al's wife at the time, would come running down the, the aisle of the theater with the latest charts from Rockpool magazine. And um, it's kind of like a Xerox magazine almost. And um, uh, as surprised as anybody that Mind is a Terrible Thing was just going up and up and up the charts. And so it was, it was like my experience with punk, I think, gave me the ability to see, like, hold on a minute, this this genre is is in its moment you know and i and i as i describe it we had a show in denver followed by two nights off and that you know as we we came into the dressing room before the encore the first show in denver the promoter just came in the room said ten thousand dollars if you announce that you're playing tomorrow and i just thought well this is ridiculous you know <laughs> like 200 who's gonna you know 200 people will show up but like ah, okay you know uh and that show sold out and he did the same thing the next night we ended up doing three sold out shows and i i remember saying to al i knocked on his hotel room door in denver and i said uh i know that we you've got like six weeks of my time and then i'm back into killing joke but i'll call them now uh if you want to just like do you also want to keep this going and he's like, oh, let me think about that. But within two weeks, I, I didn't want to have anything to... I mean, it, that tour really descended into the pits of of all kinds of ugly depravity. Yeah. And um, uh, um, and so I was happy to, to, to jump back into Killing Joke, uh, having started Pigface um, and recorded the, the, the beginnings of Pigface in the two days after the tour ended to get on a plane and go and do a uh, killing joke. Yeah. You know, I, I remember being in school, you know, you talk about that, that period where, you know, industrial music starts to explode. So, you know, I was in school from, you know, like 84 to 88, 89. That's when things really started to kind of, to really get moving you know, ministry after their, their first album, but you know, the front two, four twos and fetus and revolting Cox and all those, all those bands that were just, you know, they, they were really starting to, to change the landscape. It's almost as if like a lot of the, the, the kids that were listening to post-punk got bored with it because it started to, to soften up and get quieter and quieter and more depressing. And then all of a sudden, they, it's like they were just <clears throat> craving for something that was noisy and aggressive and, 
and angry again. And I think that was probably the reason why it became so popular for that for that period of time. Well, well, and and machinery. So you know, Big Black, uh, Steve Albini. That was drum machine driven. Yeah. Um, that was the beginning of sampling and looping, and hard repetitive beats, and um, just a different feeling. Yeah. You know, and um, man, yeah, revolting cocks, wax tracks, but a uh, big black were on uh, touch and go records, Jesus Lizard, then uh, all the stuff just coming out of this crazy soup. It, it was wild. It was wild. It was wild. And I, yeah, I remember you, know, you, you mentioned uh, Atomic Records. I remember uh-huh. I, I, a, a roommate of mine worked there. And I remember he came home one day uh, to the to the apartment and he had a Big Black's Headache EP and said, hey, take a look at this album cover. I'm like, what the hell is that? But but, yeah, I mean, they would produce so many great records and Steve Albini became, you know, a a great producer himself. It's almost as if there, you know, there's a lot of your really amazing creative talent that went into industrial music and and i think you still feel a lot of that influence today in in the way people uh make music especially now with a lot more with people doing a lot more home recording now i mean it just seems like that that was a a natural progression to almost the point where you don't really need instruments to make it happen right and it's so it's a couple of a couple of industrial drummers i think who created the technology that's the touchscreen for the iPhone today. They were just trying to make easier programmable beats, you know. And um, and, and by the way, I have Albini's eight track and his quarter inch machine. Those those tape machines are in the museum. They're, <laughs> my, they're in my working studio downstairs. You know, um, we recorded me and Jody recorded six of the demos for Extremities at Albini's studio in Chicago. So I have those tapes. And the machine that they were recorded on. So, yeah, the rest of your career, I mean, it's, it, it's very diverse. I mean, it's not just about recording music and making music, but you've done everything from, you know, songwriting and merchandising to publishing. And then all of a sudden you get into education and, and, and teaching uh, ab- about the business of, uh, of music. Right now, I, I still believe you're, you're teaching it to, at Millican. Yeah, Millican University. Indicator. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, tell me about how you got into into teaching. Well, uh, by accident, <laughs> um, uh, we were we were putting together these crazy tours, two buses, five bands, twenty thousand promotional CDs, eighty to a hundred thousand promotional postcards, maybe ten different designs with different partners and sponsors. All I mean, and I heard about interns that you could get interns and they would help and you know in in return you'd stop and show them stuff and they'd get a bit of an education and so I went um I went up to Columbia College Chicago and did a little bit of a presentation this is what we're doing this is what I've done blah 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 and somebody actually said to me uh, uh Phyllis I've forgotten her last name uh when could you start and I said I can, if you've got students, I can put them in my car now. I'm like two miles down the street, and, and I could I could start taking interns. And they're like, no, when could you start teaching? 
and I and I actually said, teaching what? Like, what, <laughs> what, are, what are you talking about? You know, and they said, well, teaching touring. You know, because you're this. This is obviously your world, and and I'm like, you know, I, I've been in a band since I was eleven or twelve, drumming since I was nine, and touring all my life. And I'm like, and I, honestly, I thought the craziest thing I could do was say yes. You know, so I remember I asked like, well, when is when is the first class? Thinking I'd have like six months to prepare, you know, and they're like, well, it's actually it's this Saturday. So, so I mean, in retrospect, obviously somebody had like, you know, let them down. So right. I was like, you know, um, I'm like, well, and how long is the class? Like thinking it would be like an hour. It's seven hours on a Saturday, and I'm just like, and I just thought, and I said to them, look, if I can, in the same way that I logistically worked out kill and joke extremities album with a break to play poland in geneva i'm like well i'm in the middle of the beginning of a tour and i looked at the schedule i'm like if i can replace the last two weeks with a a, a, a practicum experience at the metro with pig face then we've got a deal and so i had seven students come to the metro at load in for pig face i had them smell the road crew like you know <laughs> um and they uh, i actually set them up in the balcony with their own bar tab but then they came into the office for settlement with joe shannon and um we got through the first one and then and i saw there wasn't a book so i wrote tour smart for that class and then that turned into speaking opportunities around the world uh which was I, I i wasn't a public speaker but i became one um that was an evolution and finding my feet doing that you know but it was my punk background and my experience with all those bands of of reinventing things and you know uh not giving up and just just pushing that enabled me to take that on and yeah. i went on to develop the whole program at at Madison Media Institute, and um, uh, and then SAE Chicago, and and now I'm down at Millican. Yeah, you wrote quite extensively about about the music business, and obviously, since you know you were young, you know it's a different world now for musicians, <laughs> uh, and, well, and a totally yeah. different kind of business model uh, these days. It almost seems as though there's there's barely a business model in some in some regards. It, where do you see things, uh, you know, today, and and do you see any room for optimism with the uh, with the music business right now? Oh yeah, I mean, so financially, music business revenues are growing, and but that's going to like five people. You know, it's it's people like Simon Cowell who've annexed a bunch of publishing rights. There's a guy, oh, I've forgotten his name. He's in England, and he's a publisher and a business person. He's making more money from songs than every songwriter in England combined. Hmm. So there's some crappy stuff going on. But it's always been, if there's a common thread, you've always been up against it. You're always trying to differentiate from other people. You know, and knowledge is power. Once, once I tell my students, hey, 
70,000 songs were uploaded to Spotify yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so if your, if, if your pitch to me is like, you've written a great song, I'm like, fuck off. You know, you know <laughs> I, I assume 10,000 out of the 70,000 are pretty good, you know. So if that's your plan, you're screwed before you start. But if you make, um, here's a single in a scratch and sniff blueberry single sleeve, you know, here's the download, but you get attention to the streams by having an object, you know. I'll tell people, put a QR code on the side of a fish. You know, then you get the animal rights people. <laughs> this is inhumane. Some of the scales have been destroyed. You know, like, you know, but it, the fight and the problem is still the same as it's always been. And so you you you're working to make connections with people. You're working to overcome your own insecurities about your abilities and shyness and or whatever else. But but it's it's possible to make this work in a way that it didn't used to be with things like Patreon, uh, Indiegogo, Kickstarter, all of. And there's a bunch of new little coffee is a new platform, which is the great thing about teaching this stuff because one of my students just told me about. Co co coffee or this this new platform to fund things mm -hmm. so um th the problems are the same i think uh, and the, i think one of the main problems being people who are starting out they're trying to succeed in the music business as it was in 1980 you know and it's like no no you need 10 skills your ability to play bass isn't as important as you think it is you can't be terrible at the bass, but you don't need to be amazing. You need to be pretty decent at 10 different things. And that includes screen printing, social media, driving a vehicle, geography, strategy, hmm. woodworking, maybe, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm looking for someone to, to work in my studio that can also be a barista because I dark matter coffee gave me a $6,000 espresso machine. So that's part of the job description for potential engineer in my studio so that's how the world is now <laughs> what are the five things that you bring to the table and i think that that making your way in the music business it's a very powerful way to get the skills to succeed in any other business and that's good advice for anything i mean you know, to have that kind of diversity in your skill set or to work on things to uh to, to get yourself prepared for a career in in really any any occupation well well i think we've we've all developed this attitude you know because you know martin king from test department is coming in to talk at the museum tomorrow and i remember there was a test department tour i don't know where we were memphis or somewhere nashville and we actually thought the venue had been broken into and trashed but the promoter the promoter there wasn't really a promoter had just left and forgotten to lock the door. And so the sound system wasn't working very well. So our sound guy kind of rewired the sound system to make the best out of it. Everybody in the band kind of swept up, you know, mm. because if, if, the, if the show didn't happen or if it happened badly, we wouldn't have sold as many T-shirts. Maybe some people would have, like, not shown up you know, or shown up and gone, well, screw this. It looks like the, you know, the club's been in a tornado. And so 
you just get used to, oh, the show's being cancelled. Well, we'll go 200 miles. We'll book a show with one day's notice at this other place. You know, you develop the skill set that um, increases your chances of succeeding or surviving and getting across to the other side of the raging river. And that, that gives you a level of confidence that makes you attractive to any employer in any field. I, uh, I can't wait to the next time I'm in Chicago because uh, yeah. there's a field trip waiting and, uh, and I can't wait to take a look at the, take a look around. And, and if I can get to play your drums badly, mind you, uh, that'd be a real thrill. Of course. Of <laughs> course. When, when you have a trip, make sure you let me know. And um, uh, we're, we're, we're appointment only, but okay. anybody coming in from out of state, I always make an effort to like, you know, we're doing something this afternoon. We're doing something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, I'll uh, I'll start reading up on how to operate your coffee machine, and maybe I can I can help intern that way. There we go. <laughs> okay. Good deal, Martin. It's Good great. To, it's great to talk to you. Real pleasure. I've been a big fan for a long, long time. So thank you. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. Take care, Martin. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. The Punk and Industrial Music Museum is now open in Chicago. You can find out more on Martin's website and on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's musical podcast. <laughs>